Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And frankly, it's another frustrating Friday night for the families of and children and teachers who were massacred in Uvalde, along with survivors of the attack. They're all about to head into yet another weekend. Can you imagine without crucial answers to critical questions on law enforcement's extremely delayed response just last Tuesday? The Department of Public Safety is apparently no longer issuing a preliminary report that was expected to be released today. But there is some new information and it's trickling out pertaining not only to what went wrong, but also what happened inside of Robb Elementary School. And I'm sad to say that it only compounds the agony. The Texas state senator, Roland Gutierrez, told CNN that he'd been briefed that the Uvalde school's police chief, Pete Arredondo, he turned into an incident commander, remember, he didn't have a radio on him when he arrived on the scene. I have been told that this person did not have, this person being the uh, incident commander, did not have radio communication, and I don't know as to why. Don't know as to why. And it's a great question, because if it's true, the incident commander on the scene of this mass shooting would not have had a way to directly contact dispatchers. And I'm wondering, did he ever have a radio eventually? CNN reached out to both Arredondo and the Texas Department of Safety for comment, but we haven't received a response. But if Chief Arredondo did not have a radio that day when he arrived on the, on the scene, he might not have known all those 911 calls were even being made, let alone what was being said on those calls from inside of those classrooms where the gunman was firing. Now, we know as many as 19 officers were in the hallway outside those classrooms and for more than 45 minutes. And every time I say that, my stomach turns, 45 minutes. And for some reason, they were given orders not to breach the barricaded doors. Now, we don't know sitting here today why precisely that order was given. We don't know sitting here today what was known at the time of the order or who else may have contributed that decision-making. I'm sitting here wondering if it really comes down to just Chief Arredondo, or are there other people we should be looking at? That's what everyone's trying to get to the bottom of. The New York Times just obtained a reported transcript of one of those 911 calls, one that was made by a 10-year-old student named Chloe Torres. Now look at this heartbreaking readout. It says, quote, there is a lot of bodies. I don't want to die. My teacher is dead. My teacher is dead. Please send help. Send help for my teacher. She is shot, but still alive. The Times reports that Chloe's call lasted for 17 minutes. 17 minutes. And 11 minutes into that 911 call, the sound of gunfire could actually be overheard. And I keep going back to those key words we just said, we heard from this readout, 
still alive. Now, thank God Chloe was able to survive, but many of her friends and teachers, they did not. And I want you to listen to Chloe's firsthand account. My friend Amory, she started trying to call the police with her friend's phone. And when they did that, he started saying, you'll die. He shot my friends and my teachers. He shot the girl next to me, and she said, I've been shot. And I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want him to come over and shoot me. So I said, quiet, and he came back and shot her again because she wouldn't be quiet. I mean, it's so difficult to hear that coming from the voice of a child and having her describe what happened around her. And her ability to tell what happens in that moment is so crucial to better understanding every part of this. And I know as a former federal prosecutor, I know that investigations are going to take time. And it's not always at the pace with what the families want to know and when they want to know it. It takes time. I agree for all the facts that come in when you have any crime that's committed, let alone one on a scale of devastation like this. But there's the big picture and then there are the details you know in the moment. And it's not unreasonable to question what people knew in the moment and what they did in the moment. Because anything people knew in real time ought to be able to be disclosed. You heard it now from a young girl able to tell what she knew. So the questions being asked, we're not asking what everyone knew before you tell us what you knew. I'm asking what you knew, those who were in a position to make a decision. You know, a fourth grade student at Robb Elementary and the parents of a slain 10-year-old are going to testify before the House Oversight Committee next week. And, you know, the lawmakers are going to hear a lot of emotional testimony. But there also lies the key question of what they are going to do with that testimony and what are they going to do about these things? Will lawmakers demand answers to the questions that we've all been asking? Are they actually going to have access to the things that are being withheld from the media? Just please, when you hear from that little girl and the families of those who have lost their loved ones, just please tell me that you're not only going to offer and extend thoughts and prayers. Joining me now, CNN law enforcement analyst Anthony Barksdale, a former acting Baltimore police commissioner, and Chris Van Gelly, the officer who led the initial entry team at Sandy Hook. Gentlemen, I'm happy to see you both, but on this Friday night, How absolutely devastating is it, Anthony, to know that we don't have more answers the week after and going into another weekend for these families to be agonizing? What is your reaction to the fact that we're hearing that potentially the incident commander did not have a radio on the scene? What does that tell you? That tells me that he should not have been the incident commander. When you take ownership of incident commander over a significant event, you own it all. If there was someone who from another agency who teamed up with him, then it becomes a unified command. But from what we're getting, he's the incident commander alone. And to not have a radio is just, there's no excuse for it because it's command control 
And you need to be sure that everyone's on the same page. If I set up a command post, everyone reports to that command post. I get your name, your information, and I'll tell you what channel we're on. I want to know what's going on inside the incident, and you kick out to me what's going on to the outside. If I need so, to put well, eyes on that on the point, screen, excuse me, Anthony, on that point, I just want to say, let's just say for the sake of argument that he did not, for whatever reason, have a radio on scene when he first arrived. Are you suggesting that, look, because of that, it puts him at such a disadvantage to have all the information that somebody else should have assumed control in a more meaningful way? Absolutely. If you don't have your radio, how are you? How can you coordinate? How can you talk to the officers, give orders or hear what's going on, what they're seeing during this incident? It's just it's just inexcusable for that type of failure as the incident commander. You know, when you hear this and I'm, and I'm wondering from your perspective as, as well on this and, and how this goes, Chris Vangeli, when you think about it, um, you know, it's one thing about the equipment that one has. But the key to me is the decision making process here and the choices that were made. And when you hear about the fact that there is a and I I can't even believe I'm saying this a 17-minute 911 call from a 10-year-old girl telling and describing what's happening. I see you shaking your head right now. What goes through your mind when you hear that? Is this, I mean, is, is delayed reaction or this is, it appears to be, I, I don't know if it's incompetence, unconscionable, a little bit of both. What's your reaction? I mean, it's it's heart-wrenching to hear that, that girl's retelling of, of what she went through. You know, as far as the incident command, incident commander should be outside. Uh, and at this particular stage of an active shooter situation within the first five, 15 minutes, your job is to just go in there and neutralize the subject. doesn't matter if you're the chief, if you're an officer with one year on, whether you have a radio or not, as long as you have a gun, your job is to go in there and neutralize the suspect. Then you can set up your incident command and decide what you're going to do as far as your resources. But, you know, if they're inside the building, and he's acting as the incident commander. That's the wrong thing to do. His job is not to sit there and tell people what to do and try to coordinate things. His only job, his first mission one, is to get into that classroom and neutralize that suspect, especially if they hear gunfire. That right there would tell me this is not any type of a barricaded suspect. You know, this is an active shooter. It was from the start, and it remained so until that suspect was killed. That's interesting that he says that, Anthony, because the idea we've been going and thinking about the notion of an incident commander coming first and then everything else follows. That's the initial course of action. But do you agree that the initial course of action is, according to the training, to try to neutralize the threat and then worry about the logistics? It seems to some that, well, one, maybe two can happen at the same time. It depends on what you have. I don't know when he arrived. If they're already, if there's contact, then you have a green light to keep engaging, keep going at this individual. If you have a memorandum of understanding with other agencies, you need to coordinate when they arrive to that scene. You can't just have everybody running around. That incident commander has to take control and get order in the chaos. So we still need a lot of things answered. How did you know, arrivals, what units arrived, what was the what were the decisions made? And we're not getting those answers. 
You know, when I think about this, and we know about the radio potentially not being there, and I understand both of your points, the idea of you don't figure out who's in charge until you figure out who's shooting and how to get that to stop. I understand that premise. But what about the potential for body cam footage? I mean, this these have been available in places like Uvalde. And I, I asked the question particularly about maybe audio footage that could be used to try to help understand what happened there. Do you think, um, Chief Vangeli, that this would actually be available, any sort of body cam footage to try to figure out what happened in that hallway? I think body cam is invaluable in this situation. According to the news reports, Uvalde's had body cameras since 2015, and they had it upgraded in 2020. Um, When you're going through an event like this as an officer, you can't necessarily rely on your memory of what happened. You're going through uh, extreme stress disorder. You have a lot of dump of adrenaline, and there are, you have auditory exclusion. There are visual uh, distortions. There are time lapses where time seems to speed up or slow down. And so, if you giving a statement right, you know, from the start, you're going to miss a lot of things. Uh, the body camera, though, is incontrovertible. You watch a body camera, you know where that person went, who they talked to, what they said, and the times that they said it. So when they use those body cameras as pieces of the puzzle, along with the radio transmissions, along with witness statements, along with statements from the officers, they're going to get a, a very exact picture uh, of exactly what happened and what the exact timeline is. Unfortunately, that's probably going to take several weeks, if not maybe even months. Mm. Anthony Barksdale, Chief Chris Van Gelly, thank you both. Thank you, Laura. And I want to dig much deeper into this and talk about the lasting impact of mass shootings ahead, beyond the impact of families and victims and survivors, but also how these tragedies impact entire communities in the long term, long after the TV cameras are gone. Next. So we really have to talk to one another about what comes next. I don't just mean legislatively. I'm I'm talking about the after. After the police tape comes down, after the memorials seem to go away, after the cameras leave, after the names of those that we have lost are heard less and less on our airwaves than they deserve. Now, maybe it's out of self-preservation. I don't know. Maybe it's compartmentalizing. Your focus is going to shift and you're going to find yourself maybe trying to forget about these incidents that are so tragic, where people were killed just doing the very activities that you probably did today. Going to school or a doctor's appointment, attending a synagogue or going to a trip to the grocery store. Just like 10 people in Buffalo, New York, who never came home. You see, while we're trying to find out the what happened, I also want to focus on the after, and it's all part of it. You know that the lives lost will leave a void. But you may not realize that the voids that the mass shootings create, well, create voids in other ways. The collateral damage and the impact, and one perhaps surprising way to some, hunger. This is what is too often lost in our conversation. We think about the aftermath only being about the legal aspect or the accountability or in the confines of 
what we think of as justice. But there are scenes like this that happen following mass shootings. Desperate families relying on the kindness of strangers for fresh food. The other stores, you're getting junk food, and um, it's not good for you or your kids. Very upsetting. I mean, you can ask anybody who lives over here, like, um, to lose a staple in your community like that, you, you almost don't get over it. Now, they're talking about the staple being the Topps grocery store. Maybe you've heard of a thing called a food desert. It happens all across this country, and people don't talk about it. They assume it's something that it's someone else's problem. But the Topps grocery store was the only source of fresh produce for black families in Buffalo's east side of New York. Government data actually shows the reality of that. Now, look at this map. <clears throat> now, around the supermarket, many people don't have access to a car, and they live more than a half mile away from another supermarket. And that data is from when Topps was actually still open. But today, Tops remains closed. The day after the alleged shooter pled not guilty to more than 20 counts. Now, other racially motivated attacks show that it's anybody's guess when a store like this will reopen. Remember the Walmart in El Paso? That stayed closed for three months. In Jefferson Town, Kentucky, the Kroger reopened in two days. But it's an uncertainty people in Buffalo now live with every day and one that goes even beyond feeding your family. I've been scared to even go to the store by myself or take my daughter to the store because I don't even know, you know, if I'm going to be targeted. Doesn't even know if you'll be targeted. As a professor of urban planning at the University of Buffalo, my next guest, Henry Lewis Taylor Jr., he knows that every day Topps Grocery stays closed. The risk of people going hungry only grows. Professor Henry Lewis Taylor, thank you for joining me this evening. You know, many people might be hearing this term, a food desert, for the very first time. But for so many people, the reality of the inaccessibility to nutritious and fresh food might seem like a very distant stretch from a mass shooting, but it's caused this damage. Talk to me a little bit about what the impact has been in this community based on this. I think the first thing that we, we must understand is that this was not just a tragedy. It was a double tragedy. It was the tragedy of 10 people losing their lives, but it was also the, the tragedy of the single sole source of food, healthy, affordable foods, especially fresh fruits and vegetables, also being closed down. It was a double tragedy. So the challenge that, that we're facing on the short term is how do we get people to the store to shop? And it, it's a complicated issue in, in the communities where individuals, many individuals don't have a car. I remember years ago when a woman once told me, Dr. Taylor, bags, babies, and, and buses don't mix. She was talking about the, the hardship of the journey to grocery shop. In many other instances, people have to get cabs and, and, and other rides that cost money. And we're talking about a community in which rent gouging is a characteristic feature for many individuals on Buffalo's east side. 
And by rent gouging, I'm, I'm talking about people paying 35, 40, 50, 60% of their income on housing. And then when we add uh, transportation to that, then we really begin to put a strain on the family's budget. But food, food is a necessity. It's the lifeline of, of a community. So the shooting created this double hardship, the pain, the misery, and, and the, the grieving of lost lives. But then the reality of how do I get to grocery shop? And there were other services there. Uh, you could get a prescription. You could get a check cash. You could pay your utilities. Uh, a short distance from the food store was a health clinic. And not far away was a bank. You were in an environment where a single trip could allow you to do multiple things. And for a community like Buffalo, with a singular store and many people without transportation, that was a, that was a tragic and significant loss to the community. And the longer it lasts, the greater the levels of hardship will be. Professor Henry Lewis Taylor, thank you so much for bringing that context for people to understand. I mean, 10 lives were claimed. In fact, one of the people who was outside was somebody who was transporting others to be able to get to the tops, to be able to have the services you're talking about, 10 lives taken and then lifelines cut off. People need to know and understand about the collateral impact and what happens after and what the devastation of a racially targeted and motivated shooting in particular, the exacerbation of all of the factors you're talking about as well, it cannot go unnoticed. Thank you for being here, I appreciate it. Thank you, one last thing. I want to stress, people call it a food desert, but we call it food apartheid. A mm. desert make it sound as if it's something that naturally happens. When we say apartheid, we want to bring people back to the idea that these decisions are driven by public and private decisions. And these are the same set of decisions that lead to the racial segregation of communities and the denial or the limitation of certain types of critical institutions, including food stores that are so vital to human beings. Thank you. Thank you. So well said and poignant and needed to be addressed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Another former top advisor in the Trump White House was arrested today after being indicted by a federal grand jury for dodging the January 6th committee. The legal peril he now faces, who could be next, and who we're now learning won't be charged. That's coming up. So this is just in. The Department of Justice has chosen not to charge former Trump White House aides Mark Meadows and Dan Scavino for their refusal to cooperate with the January 6th committee. Now, this is coming on the same day, mind you, that Trump's former White House trade advisor, Peter Navarro, was actually arrested, indicted, and hauled into federal court precisely because he wouldn't testify or hand over documents to that same committee. CNN's Gloria Borger joins me now. Gloria, what a day. What do what we day. know about the distinction between these two cases? Why indict and charge one and not the other two? Well, Peter Navarro never even attempted to cooperate with the committee in the same way Steve Bannon never attempted to cooperate with the committee. And he, you know, he was also indicted. 
But when you look at Dan Scavino and you look at Mark Meadows, you know that these two gentlemen spent almost all their time with the president. And you're the attorney. I'm not. But there are a lot of privilege issues here, right? There, there, it's a very, very complicated set of privilege issues. And also, both of uh, these men had attorneys that dealt with the committee a lot. Uh, and you know that Mark Meadows handed over thousands uh, of pages of emails. And there is, is a long uh, set of negotiations between Dan Scavino's attorney and the committee's attorneys. Although they didn't come to any agreement, there was at least uh, some conversation. And, in and the I, end, think, I think Navarro doesn't have an attorney, right? He wants to represent himself as well. Well, That's, there you go. Point. And you know what they say about people who represent themselves, but <laughs> he... I won't he, say it on air, but uh, yeah. He, right. So, so, so the other two men have much more complicated issues and did try and deal with the committee. And the Justice Department basically said, we're not going to hold you in contempt. Mm. But Bannon and Navarro, totally different cases. Well, this is all around the select committee and January right. 6th committee. And speaking of that committee, hearings are coming up next week and they're going to be led by Congressman Benny Thompson, a Mississippi Democrat for whom January 6th is especially meaningful. You know, that's right, Laura. Uh, I traveled to Mississippi with Benny Thompson. And during that time there, I learned that he comes to this job with a very personal view of what a free and fair election means. In fact, to him, it means making sure every vote counts, and that has been his life's work. Take a look. The way Benny Thompson saw it from the House Gallery on January 6th, his congressional lapel pin was a badge of honor. Security told us you need to take your pin off because they break in and see you with that pin on. Uh, they could kill you. I said, now, nah, as many people I know who fought and died in this country, for me to have the right uh, to represent and for them to have the right to vote, I'm not going to let any insurrectionist, rioter, crazy person come here and take this pen. He's been wearing a pen for 13 terms, the only Democrat and only black member of Mississippi's congressional delegation, representing one of the poorest districts in the country. Now cast into the national spotlight as chairman of the January 6th committee, taking on a challenge unlike any other in American history. What's at well, stake with these hearings? Our, our democracy is at stake. We have to defend our democracy. We have to defend our government. For Thompson, now 74, this job is about a personal history come full circle. As a product of the Jim Crow South, the right to vote and be counted in a free and fair election has been his life's work. It's an extraordinary arc in uh, a political career. He had a struggle for representation at the local level, at the county level, at the federal level. It wasn't possible in his state uh, for a person of color to be elected. When he was growing up, voting was such an important and treasured thing. So many Mississippians lost their lives over the right to vote. That sticks with you for a while or a lifetime. In Washington, D.C., Thompson hasn't been one of those well-known faces parked in front of a camera. But in his hometown of Bolton, population 521, everyone knows Benny and the way to his office. People walk in, they sit down, they go get something to drink out the refrigerator, water or, or soft drink, and they leave. It is like the community office. 
And that's the person he is. This was the police station, city hall, mm -hmm. everything. He lives in the same brick ranch house in the same affordable housing community that he fought to build as mayor in the 70s. The person who sold us this land uh, got his life threatened uh, because he sold it to the black community. And he's back every weekend, driving around his 300-mile-long district, which includes the capital city, Jackson, and the rural Mississippi Delta. He likes to travel with his fishing pole and guns in the truck. I will call friends and say, look, I'll be in the area. Let's go hunt. Duck, deer, we're going to quail. People like that about him. He's just a regular person. Who grew up in the segregated South. I went to Bolton Colored School. We had no indoor plumbing. Obviously, no cafeteria, no library. Until he got to the private, desegregated Tougaloo College in 1964, the place where black power found its voice and Thompson found his. Martin Luther King Jr., Stokely Carmichael, sitting in this very building in Mississippi, at that point did not allow black and white people to assemble in public buildings. And for me, having never gone to school until I got to Tougaloo with a white student. Never? Never. It was like, woo. It was a revelation of sorts. He was determined not to be one of those people who got an education and left. He was going to get it and use it at home. He started by registering voters. I told my mother how excited I was to go to Sunflower County, Mississippi and help poor African-Americans to register and vote. And my mama said, we don't vote here in Bolton. Did you register your mother? Oh, absolutely. For years, the courts became his battleground as his local election wins were consistently challenged. And when he became Bolton's first black mayor in 1973, winning by just 18 votes, he was sued once again by a white challenger. We proved that there were people eligible to vote that the election officials denied. And under the, the Voting Rights Act, they couldn't do that. People somehow said, I cheated. That it just couldn't be uh, a lawful election. Rigged election? I've heard that before. Fast forward, some of the same comments that I heard back then resonated on January 6th. Now he's leading the investigation into what happened that day. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. So do you believe that Donald Trump provoked and led the insurrection and then was applauding it as it, as it occurred? I believe Donald Trump was the puppet master. He allowed, with his rhetoric, people to be bamboozled into believing that the election was stolen. And for Thompson, that's personal. My daddy... Uh, died when I was 10th grade, uh, but he never had a chance to vote. And for his son to be elected, I think is a sense of how far we've come. The bragging rights as Americans is uh, you can support the candidate of your choice, and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but you don't tear the place up if you lose. And Laura, that's only the beginning of the story he wants America to hear starting next week at the hearings. What an important piece to better thank understand you. this man. Thank you thank for you. doing it. Phenomenally done. Gloria Thanks. Borger, thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. 
Joe Biden, well, he ran on what his campaign called a battle for the soul of America. But as crisis after crisis batters the administration, well, there are signs of a battle inside the White House for the direction of this presidency. So is the West Wing letting Biden be Biden, or is that precisely what's keeping his approval ratings underwater? We'll examine it next. Well, the White House is lit up in orange tonight to bring awareness to gun violence. It's a symbol that may bring comfort. But what the country truly needs is action, and not just on gun violence. The president is struggling to overcome several major challenges, to be frank. And Biden says he can't do anything in the short term to bring down food and gas prices. He didn't even realize the shutdown of a baby formula plant would cause such a massive shortage. And now, some of his aides tell CNN that dysfunction within the administration is making it harder to deal with all these mounting problems. Joining me now is CNN reporter on that story, Isaac Dover. Isaac, I'm glad you're here tonight. And we just listed a couple of the issues and challenges facing this administration. And he ran on a platform, I remind the public, of being a problem solver. But the dysfunction and the story surrounding it, the idea of not quite knowing that there were going to be this much of a shortage. In fact, listen to this baby, um, this notion he's talking about the um, infant formula that he didn't realize would actually have these consequences. Listen to this. Here's the deal. I became aware of this problem sometime in, after April, in early April, about how intense it was. And so we did everything in our power from that point on. So what's behind what is being perceived increasingly as dysfunction? Well, look, part of this really does stem from the president himself and the way that he is struggling to get out and uh, get his message out to people. Even the clip that you showed was him talking about uh, the baby formula situation in a setting which is pretty familiar to people. He was at the White House in front of some screens, talking at a remove from most people. It's actually very different from the Joe Biden that we all got used to seeing for his entire time in public life, uh, basically until he walked into the White House for the first time. Uh, obviously, the pandemic during the campaign changed some of that, too. But the guy who was always with people and talking with people and having these unscripted moments and finding the humanity in them and having them find the humanity in him... He is sitting there and what one person familiar with White House operations told me for the story uh, feels like the, the set of Jeopardy uh, and uh, because it's just always at a distance and always at this, this reactive situation that the White House and the president has been caught in. Let's not talk about Jeopardy. It hits too close to home for me. <laughs> Sorry. And Isaac, but let me just go move on. We'll move on from that for a second. Wink, wink. But let me just ask you this. What are the aides thinking about this notion? I mean, he goes from the approachable Joe Biden, always out and about like you're talking about. Is there some tension about his planning and decision to not be that? Is that being directed? Is that in his mind or in his aides' minds a way to have a more, I don't know, presidential air, less accessible to deal with the problems of the day. What's that about? Well, like th this flows a lot from the president himself. 
He is, first of all, a man of his generation. He's 79 years old. He thinks still in terms of newspaper front pages and uh, and cable primetime, no offense again, <laughs> obviously. But, but there are so many other things in this much more fractured media environment uh, that are required to break through and so much more that's necessary to drive by repetition a message and, and uh, an idea of what he's doing and how he's approaching all the things that he, he's got in front of him. Uh, on top of that, there is Biden's own sense of the presidency as a guy who spent 50 years looking up to the presidency from the outside and thinking of it as the president gives speeches and the president can sit and explain this to the American people. And if he can just explain it, then the American people will understand. But you know what? Even that speech last night, the gun uh, uh, speech that he delivered from the White House, which was a powerful speech, he, his delivery was intense, it was stage managed with those votive candles along the, way, the walkway, all of that, how many people tuned into it uh, realistically? And he has to figure out how to make sure that what he's saying and what he wants people to hear from him breaks through in all sorts of ways, even to the people who may not have been sitting in front of a TV at 730 at night last night. Including, of course, as he well knows, the idea of his inaugural address, talking about bringing the country together, recognizing that there is, you know, the partisan filter by which we actually are sometimes able to see things. There is the silos and echo chambers. He's aware of all of this. And finally, how much do you think might be attributed to the idea of him comparing to maybe his predecessor, not being a Twitter president, not being somebody who's in that same vein? Don't answer that. It was rhetorical. Thank you, Isaac Dover. I appreciate <laughs> your you. time. And coming up, is the international mystery over Madeleine McCann's disappearance finally over? Randy Kay is on the case next. It's been 15 years since the disappearance of Madeleine McCain, a three-year-old little girl who vanished from her bedroom on May 3rd, 2007, during a holiday with her family in the Algarve region. Little Madeline went missing while her parents were dining with friends nearby in the resort of Praia da Luz. Last month, Portuguese authorities named the first formal suspect in the case since Madeline McCain's parents were officially cleared. CNN's Randy Kay traveled to the McCain hometown in the UK and to Germany for interviews with the prosecutor and crime and intelligence analysts to discuss the latest developments in the case, including new evidence that connects a suspect who is a convicted rapist and child abuser to McCann's disappearance. Listen. What makes you so certain that Madeline McCann is dead? We have some evidence for this. We have no forensic evidence, but we have other evidence. Uh, but I'm not allowed to speak about this in detail at the moment. You wouldn't come out and say that Madeline McCann was dead if you thought there was a chance that she wasn't, correct? Yes. So to be clear, the formal suspect in Madeleine McCann's case is a convicted rapist and a known pedophile. Yes. Shockingly, authorities received their first tip on Bruckner back in 2013, but as a witness in the McCann case, not a suspect. He allegedly lied and told authorities he wasn't in Portugal at the time of the disappearance. This may have been the biggest mistake in this case. In the letter inviting him for this kind of interview, they explained to him that this was about the Maddie McCann case. And if he's guilty, this gave him all the time in the world to destroy evidence. When you have this man who was living about a mile away from the Ocean Club, he has a clear criminal record. Why did it take so long? Well, that's one of the big questions in this case. 
Christian B was hiding in plain sight. So he lived next to the place and he was a known child molester. It should have been possible to identify him earlier. Two years after German authorities went public, Bruckner still has not been formally charged and he denies any involvement in the McCann case. That clip is just a small part of an intriguing one-hour special with new details about the prime suspect. Randy Kay joins us now. Randy, it is an unbelievable story. All these years later, we are still so captivated. Why hasn't he been charged yet? What are the prosecutors waiting for? Well, Laura, we went to Germany and we spoke with the prosecutor, and he did tell me that they do have cell phone evidence that puts this suspect, Christian Bruckner's cell phone, at the Ocean Club in Praia de Luge, where Madeleine McCann disappeared from. Uh, but just in the area of the Ocean Club, they can't tell if his cell phone was actually at the Ocean Club the night that she disappeared. But the trouble is, while it, while logic would follow that if his cell phone is there, uh, he was there, too. They still can't prove that. And that's why they haven't brought charges yet. They are still looking for the person, the key witness who called Christian Bruckner's cell phone. And that's the person who would be able to tell this prosecutor, yes, I called that phone. Yes, Christian Bruckner had his cell phone. He was in possession of it. He answered it. He was at uh, the area where the Ocean Club was. But they still don't have that witness. They haven't been able to find him, and that witness hasn't come forward either. So the good news for the prosecutor is that there is no statute of limitations for homicide in Germany. So they have a lot of time to figure this out. But of course, Laura, they want to charge this person as soon as they can. Wow. Thank you, Randy Kay. Unbelievable story. Sure. And thank you all for watching the CNN special report, Missing Madeline McCann is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.